Hello and welcome to another episode of Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm your hostess with the mostess, Mark. Uh, Thank you for joining me once again. And also thanks go to the following people who have signed up to support us on Patreon over the past week. So those people are Kim Anstey, Linda Rayburn, Bonnie Smith, Chloe Bowd, Michelle Zamparetti and Gillian Isom. Thank you so much to each and every one of you and of course to all of our existing Patreons. If you want to help me quit my job and do this full time and make me really happy, uh, then please head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. This week's episode sees us delve into the distressing world of terrorism. It's a subject we never cover lightly on this show. We have of course covered it before in our episodes on the 7-7 bombings in London and then in our follow-up episode to that on Samantha Luthwaite, the so-called White Widow. But it's a subject we always think very carefully about before covering. It's very emotive and often the crimes committed in the name of terrorism are particularly upsetting, as is the case today. I've wanted to cover today's case for some time now, but it is one of those cases. A bit like the case of Andrew Harper, the policeman who was dragged to his death behind a car when his ankle was lassoed by a towing rope. I just couldn't quite bring myself to follow the news coverage at the time. It was too upsetting. And although this case is no less shocking today as it was all those years ago, the passage of time does at least provide some extrication, enough to allow me to safely immerse myself. It goes without saying that terrorism, defined in the dictionary as the unlawful use of violence and intimidation, especially against civilians in the pursuit of political aims, is a deplorable and barbaric act. With each attack that occurs in Britain and indeed beyond our shores, more and more innocent people either end up dead, maimed or forever psychologically tortured by unimaginably horrific events that they witness. The United Kingdom is certainly no stranger to the ever-evolving threat of terrorism. Over the last four or five decades, from the IRA bombing campaign in the 70s and 80s, to the nail bombings in 90s London, to the Al-Qaeda-inspired coordinated attacks of 7-7, the people of Britain have been forced to deal with ferocious acts of terrorism in all of their ugly forms for a very long time. However, despite the brutal nature of all acts of terrorism, it's true that some attacks hit much closer to the bone than others. While some attacks are relatively easy to recover from, there are occasionally ones that are much more extreme and thus much harder to move on from. Indeed, few will ever forget the truly horrifying events of 2013 the day a brutal act of terrorism was committed in broad daylight on a busy London street against one innocent man. In Woolwich in London, the warm spring morning of May the 22nd in 2013 started out like any regular day for so many people. The busy streets were awash with Londoners just going about their usual business, completely oblivious to the evil that was about to unfold. 25-year-old Lee James Rigby was one such Londoner who blended in with the crowd as he went about his business that day. Born in July 1987 to a middle-class family and raised in Manchester, Lee had eagerly left school and relocated to London in order to join the army where he had become a career soldier. 
After successfully completing an infantry training course at Catterick, Lee was selected to become a member of the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers. The regiment became Lee's extended family, and he went on to serve as a machine gunner in Cyprus and Germany before undertaking a gruelling six-month-long combat tour of Afghanistan. After that tour ended, he moved to London to become a recruiter and to assist with duties at the Tower of London. Following a brief marriage in 2007, which produced a son, Lee was engaged to be married once again in the spring of 2013. Those who commanded him, or indeed who served alongside him, said Lee was an extremely popular and witty soldier. They said he had been a lifelong supporter of Manchester United, and he was never shy in letting people know about it. On that fateful day of May the 22nd in 2013, Lee had been attending a recruitment event at the Tower of London, his regiment's headquarters. After the recruitment event, it's understood that Lee had been walking alone back to his lodgings at Royal Greenwich Barracks. Shortly before 2.20 that afternoon, as he walked along Wellington Street in the direction of the barracks' front gates, Lee attempted to cross the road. Multiple CCTV cameras on the busy street captured the shocking events that followed. As Lee crossed the road, a dark blue Vauxhall Tigra appeared a few hundred yards ahead of him. The driver of the car loudly gunned his engine and then suddenly accelerated to around 40 miles per hour in Lee's direction. Lee was already more than halfway across the road at this point and it looked as though the Tigra was not initially on a direct collision course with him. However, at the very last moment, the driver of the car intentionally swerved sharply to the right and slammed into Lee at high speed, knocking him to the ground with considerable force. Stunned onlookers who had seen the impact initially thought they had just witnessed a serious road traffic accident. However, nothing could have prepared them for what then unfolded right before their eyes. As Lee lay motionless and seriously injured at the roadside, the two occupants of the car, two men in their mid-twenties, calmly got out and approached him. One was holding a meat cleaver and the other was clutching a large hunting knife. With zero hesitation, the two men began to brutally stab and hack at a defenceless Lee. They also attempted and almost succeeded in cutting his head off. This was in broad daylight on a public road in London with a shitload of terrified members of the public looking on. An eyewitness later described the event as a slaughter, plain and simple. The men's frenzied assault on Lee Rigby lasted several minutes and they didn't ease off until they were certain that he was dead. After the attack, instead of attempting to flee the scene, the two men calmly and callously paced around Lee's body, with his blood still dripping from their hands. And I think this footage that was captured by uh, somebody who witnessed the aftermath of the attack, it will just live with you forever if you've witnessed it, if you've seen it. It was actually um, someone who had filmed on their mobile phone um, in the aftermath and that footage was then later released to the media and in the footage even though uh, the news outlets had blurred 
uh, as much out as, as they could have done. You could see that the hands of Lee's attackers and indeed their weapons were just covered in his blood. They were dripping with Lee's blood and it, it was just horrific footage. But I would say at this point, I don't think it was taken in a voyeuristic way. Uh, I think it was done to capture the identities of the attacker. And of course, we we know they didn't flee the scene, which we'll come on to a bit more in a moment. But um, yeah, they could have done. And that footage would have been vital in tracking them down. Uh, but as I said, they, they certainly didn't flee. They remained by Lee's body, holding court and playing to an audience that had assembled. Personally, for me, I think in this country, we had never witnessed such extreme terrorism so close up. Of course, we've heard about the devastation of 7-7. We've seen the consequences of that and of the IRA bombing campaign. But we've only ever really seen the aftermath. We've seen the mangled bus, the mangled hotel. We'd never before seen the culprits literally with blood on their hands. Lee's attackers made no attempt to conceal what they had done. Instead, they dragged Lee's body into the middle of the road so that everyone could see the full extent of their actions. They then asked horrified and confused onlookers to call the police. These men were going nowhere. As a stunned crowd gathered to observe the grim scene, the attackers became more and more boastful. As they paced around and interacted calmly with witnesses, they made it extremely clear that they had been planning an attack on a British soldier, and they were proud of what they'd done. Several onlookers approached the scene to try and assist Lee, but they were ordered by the armed assailants to back off. Most of the terrified public duly kept their distance, but one woman refused to be intimidated, and she's an absolute legend. That woman was Ingrid Leal Kennett, a French-born Cub Scout leader from Cornwall who had disembarked a passing bus with the intention of rendering first aid after she'd seen what she thought was the aftermath of a road traffic accident. Now, despite the attackers sternly ordering her not to interfere, Ingrid disregarded her own safety and tried in vain to save Lee's life and to afford him that final bit of dignity that had been denied. On discovering that he was actually dead, Ingrid angrily turned and faced one of Lee's attackers before engaging him in conversation. The man openly admitted to her that he was responsible for killing the soldier and he claimed that Lee had killed Muslims in Iraq and Afghanistan. Ingrid pleaded with the men to hand over their weapons and surrender themselves to the police peacefully, but they both refused. She again ignored the attacker's orders to back off and move away from Lee's body. Instead, she courageously stayed where she was and shielded him, preventing any further damage from being done to him. Witnesses later described the weirdness and surrealism of the whole experience. The sheer brutality of the attack could only have been committed by a pair of certified psychopaths. Yet, when the men began to interact with the witnesses, they appeared to be anything but psychotic. By all accounts, they were calm and coherent. They were polite and well-spoken. They even apologised to women and children that had gathered for having seen such violence. They demonstrated an advanced knowledge of geopolitics, and thus a high level of education and intellect. 
In the aforementioned video taken by a member of the public, one of the assailants, still clutching a meat cleaver and with fresh blood smeared all over his hands, in an impassioned and almost gleeful tone, looked directly at the camera and delivered the following deluded diatribe. The only reason we have killed this man today is because Muslims are dying daily by British soldiers. And this British soldier is one. By Allah we swear by the almighty Allah we will never stop fighting you until you leave us alone. So what if we want to live by the Sharia in Muslim lands? Why does that mean you must follow us and chase us and call us extremists and kill us? When you drop a bomb do you think it hits one person? Or rather your bomb wipes out a whole family? Through many passages in the Quran we must fight them as they fight us. I apologise that women had to witness this today, but in our lands women have had to see the same. You people will never be safe. Remove your government, they don't care about you. You think David Cameron is going to get caught in the street when we start busting out guns? Do you think politicians are going to die? No, it's going to be the average guy like you and your children. So get rid of them, tell them to bring our troops back, leave our lands and you will live in peace. So I, I didn't really want to include that, but I hope you understand that it does provide context and certainly not an, an excuse or a reason for, for these vile actions, but it's important for you to understand their motivation. One female witness asked the attackers if they intended to harm anyone else, to which one of them responded, no, the women and children are safe, but you need to stay back when the police and the soldiers get here. The Metropolitan Police received the first 999 call at just after 2.20pm and unarmed police were deployed. Subsequent 999 calls informed the police that one of the attackers had a firearm and armed police were also deployed to the scene at 2.24pm. The unarmed police arrived at 2.29 and set up a cordon as they waited for the armed response unit who arrived shortly after at exactly 2.34pm. With their guns firmly trained on the attackers, armed police officers ordered both of the men to drop their weapons and stand down, but their demands went ignored. The standoff didn't last long, however. A few minutes after the armed police had taken up their positions, the two terrorists, one still armed with a blood-soaked meat cleaver and the other now armed with a revolver, screamed before they simultaneously charged at the police. Armed police fired eight tactical rounds which aimed to merely incapacitate the men. Subsequently both were shot and fell quickly to the ground, critically wounded but still alive. The police moved in and both men were immediately arrested and taken to separate hospitals for emergency treatment where they remained under heavily armed guard. Their desire to become martyrs for Islamic Jihad had been denied. A revolver, several knives and a meat cleaver were seized at the scene as evidence and it did later emerge that the gun was a fake. Lee Rigby was attended to by paramedics but he was quickly pronounced dead at the scene. A post-mortem examination showed that he had died from multiple incised wounds. Medical experts later commented that his injuries were so severe that he never stood a chance of surviving them. In the immediate aftermath of this slaughter, news of the terrorist attack swept across London and the rest of the UK. 
Social media was suddenly awash with disturbing images and videos of Lee's lifeless body lying dead on the tarmac in broad daylight. Menacing footage of one of the men spewing his warped justification of the killing to onlookers was also going viral on YouTube within minutes of the attack. The news of the attack was met with the typical concoction of raw emotion that often comes in the wake of a terrorist attack. Fear, shock, sadness, anger, hatred and of course immense sorrow for the loss of an innocent man's life. More than anything though, people just wanted to know the identities of these two evil monsters, the people who had committed such a heinous act. After a brief investigation, their identities were revealed. The two individuals who carried out the attack were formally identified as 28-year-old Michael Adebalajo and 22-year-old Michael Adebawale, two London-born men of Nigerian descent. Rather controversially, it later emerged in the media that both of these men were well known to British security services and were assessed as high-risk individuals. Michael Adebalajo was born in Lambeth to a devout Christian family. He was an average student who had attended Marshalls Park School and then Havering Sixth Form College before going on to study sociology at the University of Greenwich. It's believed that Adabalajo converted to Islam in around 2003 and ever since that time he displayed disturbing and radical views that saw him get arrested several times for attending violent protests and eventually he caught the attention of the British security services who suggested that he had ties with a number of outlawed Islamist groups. In 2010, Adabalajo was arrested in Kenya, along with five others, after he had travelled there using a false passport in order to train with Al-Shabaab, a militant group linked to Al-Qaeda, and a group that the white widow Samantha Luthwaite was very high up in. Adabalajo was interrogated by a Kenyan anti-terrorism unit, then released to British authorities and later deported. However, for reasons unknown, no charges were ever filed against him for this event, either in Kenya or the UK, but he was at least on the watch list now. At the time of his attack on Lee Rigby, Adabalajo was a married father of six children, the youngest of which had been born just four days before his terrifying attack on Lee. Terrorist number two, Michael Adebowale, studied alongside Adebalajo at the University of Greenwich. Adebowale's mother was a probation officer and his father was a member of staff at the Nigerian High Commission. His parents separated when he was young and he converted to Islam in early 2009. Adebowale was convicted of drug dealing offences in 2009 and sentenced to 15 months imprisonment. It's believed that this is where he was radicalised. Both Adabalajo and Adabawale had links to gang culture in London and as Muslims they were known as extremists and fanatics who idolised infamous hate preachers and terrorist sympathisers such as Abu Hamza and Anjem Chowdhury. Needless to say, the Metropolitan Police and the security services came under heavy fire from the media who poured scathing criticism upon them for failing to keep the public safe despite knowing full well that both Adabalajo and Adabawale were high-risk individuals. Now, as the men recovered from their gunshot wounds in hospital, they were extensively questioned by police and anti-terrorism officers. 
They openly and freely admitted to the murder and detailed to the police that Lee Rigby himself had not been their specific intended target that day. In fact, the two attackers had simply planned to kill the first soldier that they had seen. In order to accomplish that, they had parked up in the vicinity of the army barracks in Woolwich and then just simply sat there, waiting for their ideal victim to show up in front of them. Shortly after two o'clock, they spotted Lee crossing the road in the distance, wearing a Help for Heroes hoodie and carrying an army-issue backpack. Now, for anybody outside of the UK, Help for Heroes is a charity here that supports the armed forces and they're very well known and by Lee wearing one of their branded hoodies together with the army issue backpack, it would have been very clear to them that that this was a, uh, a member of the forces. During the interrogation, Adabalasio, who claimed to have carried out the attack whilst acting as a soldier for Allah, did not hold back on the gruesome details of his actions. He was quoted as saying, The most humane way to kill any creature is to cut the jugular. He may be the enemy, but he is still a man, so I struck at the neck and attempted to remove the head. And so it transpired that Lee's fate had been down to nothing more than sheer bad luck, a tragic and gruesome consequence of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. The brutal slaying of a soldier on a busy London street sparked widespread outrage amongst the wider community. Despite several high-ranking politicians, including then-Prime Minister David Cameron, publicly calling for a calm and civil public response, the events proved to be too much to bear. Before long, racial tensions in the UK had escalated to boiling point. In the immediate aftermath, Julie Siddiqui of the Islamic Society of Britain expressed concern that the killing would be used to create ethnic and community divisions, and she wasn't wrong. Almost immediately, the British National Party leader, Nick Griffin, began posting a series of tweets blaming mass immigration for the attack, and he called for a right-wing protest rally in Woolwich. The far-right group known as the English Defence League also got in on the action, calling on its nationwide army of supporters to mobilise for a retaliation. Some members staged a protest at Woolwich Arsenal Station, in which property was damaged and bottles were thrown at police. The BNP scheduled their protest for the 1st of June, but Scotland Yard refused to permit them to march from Woolwich Barracks. The demonstration instead took place at Whitehall in central London. The far-left group, Unite Against Fascism, mounted a counter-protest and inevitably ended up clashing with the far-right activists. Police arrested 58 people from both sides of the foray for disorderly conduct and breaches of the Public Order Act. In response, an additional 1,200 police officers were deployed across London in order to prevent more serious revenge attacks on Muslim communities. However, this did little to quell public rage and a string of sickening racist attacks against innocent Muslims ensued. Incidents ranged from broad daylight verbal abuse to physical assaults in which women's headscarves were pulled off. Graffiti was scrawled over mosques and Muslim-owned businesses. The anti-racist charity Hope Not Hate claimed that online activity suggested that some of the attacks on Muslims were coordinated and they reported 193 Islamophobic incidents, including attacks on 10 mosques. 
Despite ongoing pleas from the government for calm, the ugliness of racism continued to fester on both sides of the racial lines. In June 2013, a 21-year-old woman from Harrow was ordered to complete 250 hours of unpaid work after tweeting that people in Help for Heroes t-shirts, quote, deserve to be beheaded. In March 2014, a married couple from London were jailed for posting videos on YouTube which celebrated the death of Lee Rigby, with one video describing it as a brilliant day. These were just a few examples of literally hundreds of incidences of racial hatred that occurred across the UK during the run-up to the trial of Lee's murderers. On the 27th of September in 2013, after being deemed mentally fit to stand trial, Michael Adebalajo and Michael Adebawali appeared via video link in court at the Old Bailey, where they both defiantly pleaded not guilty to the murder of Lee Rigby and to all additional charges relating to the incident. The trial commenced at the Old Bailey on the 29th of November in 2013. Their highly controversial attempts at defence won them no favours amongst the jurors. Whilst the men openly admitted to killing Lee in cold blood, they brazenly claimed that they had acted as soldiers of the Islamic Jihad and that the killing was a fully justifiable revenge attack for non-specific military actions against Muslims that had occurred in the Middle East. In other words, Lee Rigby was a soldier for the West and the defendants were soldiers of Islam. Therefore, the killing was not murder, but an act of war. Needless to say, the men's outrageous arguments were unanimously rejected by the members of the jury. On the 19th of December in 2013, seven months after the killing, Michael Adebalajo and Michael Adebawale showed no emotion as they were found guilty of the murder of Lee Rigby. The judge, Mr Justice Sweeney, made it clear he would be more than willing to pass sentences of whole life prison terms, if necessary. On the 26th of February the following year, both men were sentenced to life in prison. Michael Adebalajo was given a whole life order, excluding him the possibility of parole. He will die in jail. Michael Adebawale, the younger of the two, was given a minimum term of 45 years in prison. During sentencing, the judge strongly condemned the attacks, commenting that the extremist views of the attackers were a betrayal of Islam. He also outwardly dismissed their earlier claims that they were soldiers, and instead branded them as nothing more than murderers. These comments enraged Adabawali, who stood up and shouted, That's a lie, while Adabalajo angrily chanted, Alu Akbar. The two newly convicted terrorists ignored the judge's order to settle down and stay quiet and a brief scuffle with court security guards ensued. Both men had to be forcibly removed from the court and the sentencing continued in their absence. In the aftermath, Lee Rigby's family issued a statement outside the Old Bailey which read, Today the Rigby family welcomes the whole life and significant sentences that have been passed down on Lee's killers. Lee was lovely. He would do anything for anybody. He always looked after his sisters and always protected them. He took a big brother role with everyone. All he wanted to do from when he was a little boy was be in the army. He wanted to live life and enjoy himself. His family meant everything to him. He was a loving son, husband, father, brother and uncle and a friend to many. 
Lee's army colleagues also provided tributes. Lieutenant Colonel Jim Taylor, the commanding officer of the 2nd Fusiliers, described him as a dedicated and professional soldier and added, his ability, talent and personality made him a natural choice to work in the recruiting group. He will be sorely missed by everyone in the 2nd Fusiliers. Our thoughts and prayers are with his family and friends at this incredibly difficult time. Captain Alan Williamson also issued a statement in which he described Lee as a cheeky and humorous man who was an extremely popular member of the fire support group. He said he was always willing to help younger members of the regiment. And Williamson added that Lee's loss would be felt across the battalion, adding that that would be nothing compared to how his family must be feeling at this difficult time. He finished by saying our thoughts and prayers are with them. The Prime Minister, David Cameron, offered a statement of condemnation for the attacks, saying, This country will be absolutely resolute in its stand against extremism and terror. This action was a betrayal of Islam and the Muslim communities that give so much to our country. We will defeat violent extremism by standing together. We will not rest until we know every detail. The attackers told Ingrid Loyal Kennett that they wanted to start a war in London and she replied, you're going to lose, it's you against many. She speaks for all of us. Abdul Haq Baker, chairman of Brixton Mosque, a key figure in the Islamic community and well known for his work in de-radicalising young Muslims who, like Adabalajo and Adabawale, have been influenced by extremist groups like Al-Qaeda, later told the BBC that Lee's attackers' extremist views were, quote, not representative of Islam in any way, shape or form. He also added that the vast majority of Muslims do not subscribe to the extremist rhetoric and the distorted, warped understanding of Lee's murderers. He said the vast majority in our society, I would say, are proud to be Muslim, proud to be British and proud to participate in our society. On the 8th of April in 2014, Michael Adebalajo launched a controversial appeal against his whole life term, but fortunately this was swiftly rejected by a panel of appeal judges in late July. That same month, a Freedom of Information request filed by the Sun newspaper showed that both terrorists had received more than £200,000 in legal aid. Later, in December of 2014, both of Lee's killers again launched legal challenges on their sentences. Michael Adebalajo attempted to have his conviction overturned and his whole life sentence reduced, while Michael Adebawale attempted to secure a reduction in his minimum sentence of 45 years. Again, both requests were rejected at the Court of Appeal. On the 3rd of June in 2018, speaking from inside prison, Michael Adebalajo allegedly said that he deeply regretted his actions and he apologised for the first time, adding that he misinterpreted the Koran in order to justify his aims and that he was brainwashed. But Lee's mother, Lynn Rigby, said she does not accept his apology and will never forgive him. Ingrid Loyal Kennett, the woman, the very brave woman who... Uh, remained talking to the attackers while they waited for the emergency services, was later awarded a Pride of Britain award in this country. She's an exceptional woman, uh, well worth having a a look into what, what um, what she did in more detail and who she is. So thank you for listening. I know again it's not been an easy episode 
uh, or an easy case to explore. It's been really, really tough. Um, yeah, I keep saying it, but hopefully we'll have something less brutal next week. Uh, so watch this space. Do join us then. Uh, in the meantime, uh, have a good one. I'll, I'll see you soon. Bye. <laughs>